Here at Why Dance Matters, we have always depended on the kindness of strangers. Well, not only strangers, we've also benefited a huge amount from the encouragement and inspiration of a colleague from the Faculty of Education at the Royal Academy of Dance. Katrina Ferugia Creel has supported this RAD podcast from the get-go. She's suggested likely guests, she's a keen listener, and she even got a name check in our episode with Kathy Marston. I'm David Jays, and as we were planning this season of Why Dance Matters, we realised we hadn't yet explored the faculty. Why does the RAD have a faculty of education? What is Katrina's role as head of research? And how did she discover that dance academia was where she wanted to spend her working life? Katrina was born in Malta, but has been based in the UK since her student days. She's been with the faculty since 2005, and her books include Princess Putiatin and the Art of Ballet in Malta, about a crucial figure in Malta's dance history, and co-editing The Oxford Handbook of Contemporary Ballet, which is a brilliant survey of choreographers who are shaping the art of ballet. I've often bumped into Katrina at dance performances, so I know that dance isn't just a job to her, it's a passion. She's always fizzing with ideas and enthusiasm. This should be a lively chat with a committed educator. So, settle down class, here comes teacher. Welcome to Why Dance Matters. I've known you as a colleague for quite a number of years now, but I realise this is the first chance I've had to ask all the intrusive, pesky personal questions I've never been able to in normal conversation. So I'm very pleased about that. <laughs> and I am too. I'm delighted. And I stopped when you say that. Yes, we haven't really sat across the table. It's normally we chat in, you know, th- theatre foyers or in the auditorium in between performances and go, how are you and what's the latest? Yeah, but lovely to be with you. It's a great pleasure for me. One of the pesky things I realise I don't know is how dance entered your life. Well, what's the beginning of that journey? Well, I've got a, there's a photograph um, at my mother's house of probably me not being quite three because I was in my little black leotard, very sombre, black leotard, black crossover, sombre outfit. But it must have been October time, so I wasn't quite three yet, so I would have turned three in the January But I went off to dancing class and like most little ballet girls do, dance around the house. So my mother said, let's get her off to a dance class. In most of the Maltese context, it's around the corner. Everything's around the corner in some way. So that's really where my journey started, at the ballet studio. And as you mentioned, you were in Malta. What was that like as a place to grow up, as a place to start dancing? So extracurricular, that was everything. There wasn't a a vocational school where you could train full time. But nor was I possibly interested in that because I was a very little academic student, geek, always top of the class or near about top. When I look back, I think, no wonder I'm doing what I'm doing because already, even in my sort of early years at school, academic was always a very important thing. And 
lo and behold, I would like to share this with you, that I didn't want to go to university to study theatre studies because it could have led me elsewhere or physiotherapy. And I did write to the university to say I am withdrawing from the course. But I was wanting to come to London. That was it. That's what I wanted to do. That was the dream, not to be a dancer in any way, but dancing was a huge part of my life. And it's interesting to stop and think, was I in love with dancing or with the dance? And I possibly think it probably would have swayed with looking at the dance. Because one of my earliest memories, funny enough, we're recording this in the summer, hot Maltese weather, as we've kind of experienced quite lately here in England with a heat wave. In preparing for this chat, we... I wanted to kind of look back at my childhood and one thing stands out. Summer holidays, we had very much in terms of Maltese television, we had a Maltese channel, but we had the Italian channels, Rai Uno, Rai Due, Rai Tre. And they had the Maratona d'Estate, which was the summer marathon of dance. And I vividly remember my dad waving to me from our little beach house, giving me a sign to kind of time to get out, get dry, because the program starts at noon. And that's where I watched Balanchine's repertoire, Four Temperaments, Serenade. Bearing in mind, Malta in the sort of 80s and 90s, you had some companies coming to visit, but it was quite an occasional thing or marking a big milestone. But you wouldn't have had the same kind of cultural sort of landscape. It was more towards the late 90s that you kind of had more visiting companies. But I had this curiosity and I wanted to know more. But those summer days watching New York City Ballet, where was New York? I didn't even know in New York. Was. I was just a little, you know, kid from a small island. And that stayed with me for a long time. You talk about coming to London and having that idea of, about moving. Do you take the island with you when you move? It Does that sense of being a little curious girl on, on, on an island kind of accompany you through life? Absolutely. I've been now in the faculty or associated with the faculty for nearly 20 years. So that's a nice big chunk in terms of from being an undergraduate through to coming through and where I am today. And over, I've been sort of London 22 years, the curiosity remains. And I think if that dies out then my interest in dance would also die out. I don't think I'm there yet. I think I, I think I have got a bit more mileage yet, given that sort of, you know, there's always some new project to work on. There's always something new to think about. But I was always consciously aware, as soon as I landed as this student from Malta, which, okay, part of the Commonwealth, but still everybody's got their own little divergences. But being present, and I just indulged in watching everything that I could. I still have all my programmes. Oh, really? Is there, there's an archive? There is an archive, which has been archived in a spare room, in a cupboard at the back. I can't part with them. And especially, you know, when you kind of go through life with big milestones and you start to think, what should I keep with me? What should I discard? Those programs have stayed with me. And I'll tell you a little anecdotal story. Working on the Oxford Handbook of Contemporary Ballet, we had Professor Joe Butterworth co-writing a chapter with choreographer Wayne McGregor. And we had a few email exchanges and the email exchange went on the lines of, I can't remember what season that particular ballet premiered. And, and I, I responded to both to say, give me five minutes <laughs> and I will come back to you. Of course, what they didn't know was I went into the spare room, picked up the program and I could check to see what part of the season of the Royal Ballet, this, um, it was info we were talking about in the book chapter. But yeah, 
I did. I went back to the school. Give me five minutes to go to the cupboard. I didn't divulge all the details, but I found it and there it was. But, you know, it's part of the the baggage that you accumulate in life. I'm just thinking, you know, I mean, I'm not an archivist in any way, but they're just put together. They're, they're huge, important parts of my life in terms of watching performance. And that's a curiosity that I came with from a small island to the metropolis of London. And when did it crystallise the idea of being a dance academic, that that was a thing? Very soon, very soon, right from my teacher training, first semester, first academic year. All of my peers were really keen to go back into the community and teach. There were ones who wanted to be examiners. And already from even conversations with my peers, I didn't fit in with that desire to be part of that community of working, which is a fabulous they're the grassroots of what we do, because in a sense, I'm ashamed to say that now their students are graduating. They're not even joining. They're graduating from our program. So it's lovely to see that continual sort of flow of generations coming. But I knew back then, first year, I had this huge affinity for books. I love doing class. I love the history class. I love the dance pedagogy class, analysing steps. That was, we had amazing teachers. Hilary Moss, she'd tell us how to analyse from standing in fifth position and tracking and talking through every movement. Now, that kind of key skill, I remember probably even my MA, which was in dance studies, and part of my MA was movement analysis. But they were quite overwhelmed with the quality of descriptions and I took that into my PhD and I took that into my subsequent books. What do we see? How does the movement evolve? What makes a difference? So I have to attribute that to not only my teachers but also my interest in that academic study. And I knew even from after my first year, I think I was having a a conversation with RAD examiner June Mitchell. She was examining in Malta in the summer after my first year. And she asked me, what would you like to do? And I said, oh, no, I already have an idea what my dissertation's going to be on. It was on William Forsyth, and I wanted to analyse this particular work in the middle, somewhat elevated. And I dare say 22 years later, 21, 22 years later, tomorrow I'm, I'm giving a webinar on the work of William Forsyth, which brings together not only the Oxford Handbook of Contemporary Ballet as a sort of seminal text, but also I was talking about this back when I was an undergraduate, That, or at least my curiosity was around that point back then. That's very satisfying that you're able to circle some of the same works, bringing new thoughts, new ideas. But isn't that how, I don't know, for me it's about evolving, otherwise we'll become fixed or revisiting things with more experience. I have a thing about watching, this is a bit of a geeky thing, I have a thing about watching ballets, the same ballets, same repertoire, different companies, different periods. So I went through a phase of Twyla Tharps in the upper room. Again, how many companies can I see dancing? What are the different nuances, different, again, Forsyth repertoire? My latest thing is Blake Works. I want to see how many different versions of Blake Works. It used to be step text, and now it's kind of evolved. How many different versions can I see, and where are the different nuances? Same with Infra. When we look at Infra, there's the Royal Ballet version. But then you look at Alvin Ailey, they bring their own different sensitivities towards it. Or if you look at the National Ballet of Canada, 
again, another different set of nuances. And how easy is it to find a language to talk about all those differences? Because, I mean, in some ways, dance, it's a medium of the moment. It, it happens and it, it evaporates and, you know, it's there in the memories of the people who took part and the people who watched and it's never the same twice. How easy is it to find a language that will capture that and communicate it? I think I've been blessed with speaking to a couple of different people. Students, peers as well within the academic circle when you go to conferences. And I spent a, a number of years doing the conference circuit and that really hones in your ability to talk to other academics or speak alongside other academics, speak to those who are professors and Professor Emerita in their own right as a, alongside other fellow PhD students. So that's really important. But then over the years, I found that um, I've always been quite good to bring people together. That's one of my kind of key things that I enjoy is bringing people to come together. And I had the good fortune of, I guess, meeting people who helped me along the way, like Professor Lynn Garofola, who was willing to give space at Columbia University. And I was able to invite these young choreographers, um, Troy Schumacher from New York City Ballet, Emery Lacrone as well, another sort of New York-based. A number of, you know, Joshua Beamish, I'm thinking also of the sort of Canadian-US global citizen, really. Joshua's a, a nice global citizen to draw upon. But speak to choreographers and dancers about the same topic, but in a different way. Then when you start writing about dance... You're writing for your examiners. You're writing for your readership. Who is your readership? That's the, the most important thing. You know, you know, as a writer yourself, just getting to know who's going to pick up this thing and go, that makes sense. Or, oh, what are they talking about? Suddenly it's been wonderful for me to have been blessed with so many different projects, whether it's New York, whether it's coming back to London, whether it's shaping an anthology that brings, I think we had 53 chapters, but they were dual contributors so I can't say they were just 53. No, this is the in the Oxford handbook, handbook which yeah. is more of a, somebody said to me yesterday that's not a book that's a tome and I said, <laughs> well we wanted to do justice to the, the field so you know it had to be a tome but it is a health hazard if you do drop it on your foot <laughs> I would dare say you know be cautious with the book but it's a treasure trove. Wear and strong shoes. Bring your point shoes out for that reason but it's hugely important to know who your audience is and who's going to be the receiving end of this information because ballet shouldn't be stuck in an ivory tower in terms of academia. It should be there to be digested by so many different people outside of the academic context. So, yeah. And you've mentioned um, a few times during this conversation the Faculty of Education, uh, the RAD. For people who don't know, can you give us just a, a quick overview of the range of the faculty's work? Yeah. So I always, as again, I said to you, know, history is everything for me. There's an important lynch to bring in the context of dates. So the faculty was set up in 1999, um, and that's when Professor Joan White was brought into the RAD to look at the portfolio, back then quite limited range of, you know, programmes. And, and I use the word limited in quite a sort of positive element because the RAD was known for its teaching certificate and its pioneering distance learning degree, which they were offering, you know, quite ahead of many of our contemporary organisations that were there at the time. So Joan came in in 1999, and her vision was really to create a portfolio of programmes right from RAD awards, 
through to university validated, BA through to MA. I remember the PGCE being launched. I remember the MA being launched. So it feels like it's been a continuum of we're not quite there yet. We've done our 21st anniversary. We're 22 years on. But it's really important that it doesn't mean to say that there was nothing before 1999. There was something hugely important called the College of the RAD. And this came back as an interest for me recently in my um, research on Keith Lester, who was really seminal in the 60s and 70s to shape the college into upskilling those dance teachers to be seen beyond just dance teachers teaching in a church hall, that they were actually needing to learn so many different subjects. So the Faculty of Education has been blessed with a number of different colleagues coming throughout the year, in and out, as say some people stay for longer, others stay for a shorter while. But, you know, you've got the wonderful colleagues who are now no longer with us, Elaine Ray, Holly Price, Michelle Groves, who initially was running the distance learning programs and is now the director of education. So there is a sense of continuity over the years. But really, you know, it's the importance of understanding the legacy of the faculty that, you know, it's not just about starting a new refresh in 1999. It brought along aspects of the college. It moved forwards into what we, as we were moving into the 21st century. And of course, we've had you know, three directors, Joan White, Anne Hogan, who was instrumental in paying attention to the professional dancer teaching programs. So for professional dancers retraining, we had one program from 1975. It evolved into two programs that are now delivered in Australia, in China, in Europe, in Berlin, and in London. So it kind of demonstrated, you know, each director gave their vision for the development. And now we've got Dr. Michelle Groves, who brings together her research in the context of what does it mean to be a dance teacher? How do we negotiate across different contexts and, and the changes or the identities that we bring as professionals to the dance teaching community? And that sense of what it means to be a dance teacher for the RAD, which has members in over 80 countries, in all sorts of different cultural contexts all sorts of places. How do you devise a curriculum that helps them gather the skills they'll need, but will also make sense in all of those different contexts? That's a really important point. You know, if we were talking about the 90s, there was a particular vision for teacher training, even 20 years ago. And now again today, you know, we can't silo a dance teacher and say this is what he or she or they need to work around but we have to be responsive to the times that we live in. So, you know, my colleagues, my senior colleagues, and also other academics within the department, we're constantly having discussions on what do our current training teachers need to upskill to go out. And of course, my wonderful colleagues in the CPD department look around and say, so what do our teachers need in order to continue their professional development? You mentioned cultural sensitivity, geographic location, those are all of those entities. You know, even something as simple as Wi-Fi or internet access. We live in a digital age, but digital prowess is not necessarily uniform across different contexts. You might have power outages. You might have, you know, certain peaks of the days where you're able to access certain information. So my word is always flexibility. We try to keep that flexible approach. And if we have live sessions on our teacher training programs, and we have students from 
Australia and Canada, and it's always the kind of what time is going to suit it best for the students. We've talked on the podcast before about how the performing wing of the profession is thinking about diversity and thinking about how it needs to adapt for the 21st century, slowly and reluctantly in some cases. But I'm wondering for the teaching profession, as you look back over your almost 20 years here, how has that changed? Is there more change that needs to happen? I don't think I would have been able to do the kind of teaching that my students did during the pandemic. I watched my students teach online to participants. We're very used to that. And I even saw a student teach virtually from her space. I can't remember if she was in isolation, but her participants were in the space. And so there was this transactional kind of bridge between the virtual and the in-person, which was truly phenomenal. And I sat through that assessment watching this young trainee teacher teaching her final assessment. And I thought, goodness me, would I have been able to cope with that? And I think, you know, it is right that these students work around technologies. It is right. You know, yes, there have been so many changes because I remember being a student up in the um, Casavan Espinosa studios in the old building and... The kind of lessons that we learned were contextually relevant to the turn of the 21st century, where we were looking at learning and teaching theories that were relevant. Well, they were coming out of sports education, Um, you know, Muston and Ashworth, you know, those were writing 20 odd years ago. That was really new back then. I can't comment on what happened in the 70s because I wasn't around as a student, but I suspect they were you know, in the ethos of what the college and the faculty, we were always interested, I suspect, in keeping abreast with times. And if we had to go back to the 40s, when those early conversations with College of Headmistresses that were adamant as part of the University of London's mission to upskill the teacher training, that I suspect was equally as mind-blowing to be able to say, this is a programme of the time. That was launched in 1945-46, that first generation. But I would like to say that every generation has hopefully had those contemporary moments influence their teacher training, whether it was the 40s or whether it was, you know, recently with online technologies during a pandemic, where we as academics taught, like everybody else in the higher education, we taught classes online, we had tutorials online, we taught technique classes online. We had teaching placements happening online. So we moved with the times. And I suspect that is what the faculty is possibly going to be. Well, you know, what is the legacy of the faculty that we move with the times to be sure that we know what we are talking about because our teachers will go out into the workforce. And we have those conversations end of every academic year. During the academic year, are we giving our students the best information to be going out there? So what we talked about five years ago, maybe still relevant, but surely if something new, and particularly in the 
post-2020 um, incident with George Floyd, you know, we've got to kind of move away from the ideas that this is ballet dance teachers, they work with a particular group of students. When we look at the legacy of what Ballet Black is going to leave in terms of its manifesto for a school, that is hugely empowering. And so we have to bring, you know, into the Faculty of Education people from communities that are going to educate and have a voice within our landscape as teacher training landscape. And why is it important for the RAD to have a research wing? Because it's, for many people listening will think of dance as a supremely physical form that is taught in dance classes in, in that way. Where does the research fit in? Why, and why is that crucial? The message needs to be clear out to the wider community. Research isn't about just higher education. Yes, the money generally comes from foundations or pots of money that are university kind of driven. And so certainly the role of research is there to empower knowledge, to share knowledge, to empower people to know a bit more than they did. And it was interesting, I was speaking to a colleague at One Dance UK just about a week ago, and we were talking about the importance of research, that it isn't just to be placed in peer review journals. It's important. It's there. Universities recognise that. All academics will via to, you know, they want to get their, you know, work in a particular book or in a particular journal. But we do know that it's not always about that circle. It's not always about academic context. The RAD is in a unique position that it straddles between higher education and a broader set of communities, plural. That then strides upon the conscious of the RAD as a business, as an organisation, as a charity, to ensure that we are giving back to the community. I want to draw upon an example that we pioneered in 2012. Dr Victoria Watts, who was part of the faculty back in 2012, she came across a bid that had to do with community and learning. And she sussed out and she looked at some educational document that was based European-wide that basically said, we have ageing populations. And when she looked at the remit of the RAD, she sussed out exactly what was missing from the RAD's portfolio. And that's where the Dance for Lifelong Wellbeing project came along. And I was one of those who went along to the community centres around London, whether it was Roehampton, whether it was Southwark. And I remember sitting with participants and asking questions. You know, they took first they took part in all of, you know, their chair dancing, which brought much joy. The other side as part of the research was gathering data on these participants. You often had to wait to hear about the human story before you got their postcode. So one woman said to me, this was Christmas time, December 2012. And she shared the story with me and I had to hear through all of the different layers of her, her sadness at Christmas time, but why she enjoyed the dance class and loved the music from, I, I think it was swing music, Frank Sinatra that was being played. And she shared with me some really sort of dark moments in her life that she lost her daughter in 2012. But the dancing gave her so much joy. That's why she came and why she looked forward to a Thursday, I believe the class was on. So these are projects that are important to the community. And so through the CLIF funding, we were able to, or certainly Dr. Victoria Watts was able to harness this information. 
we had a conference. Academics like to go to conferences and share information, but we also brought professionals from a broader remit, not just the higher education context. But then what we really started to find was silver swans that emerged out of the Dance for Lifelong Wellbeing. So research is hugely important because it upskills, it adds more tools to the dance teacher. The other aspect of research, or certainly as part of my remit within the faculty, is to bring people to us. So the guest lecture series, which is one of, for me, it's like not the jewel in the crown because there are other jewels <laughs> along the way of what we offer at the RAD in terms of research and knowledge exchange. That's probably the term that I probably would stick alongside. If I had a post-it note, I would write knowledge exchange and stick it alongside research because research sounds like it's very, you know, um, <laughs> But knowledge exchange is also very important stuff. The guest lecture series, which has, all, has been around since 2012, again, the Olympic year, that was a seminal year, certainly for faculty. I mean, I, I don't know whether we were picking up those vibes because we had the Dance for Lifelong Wellbeing. We had the development of the uh, guest lecture series, which started out by come along to the RAD and here, and I do think the first person who spoke was Kevin O'Hare. I may be incorrect, but I may be correct. What, now I have to go back. Director of the Royal Ballet. Exactly, yes. I'll share this with you because apparently I was reminded last week by a fellow colleague in the Royal Academy of Dance that I did ask Kevin O'Hare a question. And my question was so, how will the Royal Ballet address the absence of women choreographers? I completely forgot about that. Good and question. one of my dear colleagues reminded me, she said, you do realise you asked that question to Kevin O'Hare? And I said, remember. You know, again, as part of knowledge exchange, CPD, adding webinars on ballet, on dance, on contemporary dance that shares knowledge, and one of which is going to be, or certainly I'm in the sort of moments of the liminality of before and it actually happening because it's literally the next 48 hours talking about women choreographers in a CPD webinar. So all the synergies of research, it doesn't mean a not research and knowledge exchange. It's not exclusively about just the report writing. It's also fielding out into the communities as well as learning from the communities because going into a community and learning about how do communities deal with and I'm quite excited about the forthcoming 2022-23 events because we're talking about ballet, we're talking about Cuban uh, mulatta dancing, we're also talking about the idea of dancing Jewish, which is the title of Rebecca Rossen's book. I'm hugely excited to bring the academics in and also people from the professional context. But, you know, when you've got somebody like Alf Daniels Mabingo who talks about Uganda and in a way, decolonizing within the African context and bring those discussions to our communities where we might not always stop and think about that. We should, because, you know, if we are going to be global, then it's not just about what is sort of the mainstream, but bring these other voices into the mainstream. But also looking at indigenous contexts where we are working across different teaching landscapes. I'm thinking of New Zealand and we've got Christy Mortimer coming to speak to us about her, her new book. Again, these are two of Daniels Mabingo, actually, and Christy and all of the, the speakers. They've all published very well-respected books with very, you know, wonderful publishers. But again, I come back to that question about the audience. 
we're bringing this knowledge to a very different, diverse group. And it's just a wonderful opportunity to, to bring people together to talk about and also for allowing people to maybe ask questions that they may not really have the opportunity to ask such questions within their own community. Just to move away from your work at the RAD for a moment, Katrina, you're also a dance mother. I mean, it's kind of words that strike terror, I'm sure, into the hearts of many. I'm a dance mom, yes. You're a dance mom. I wonder how, how has that changed your perspective on the work a teacher does, seeing it from that slightly different angle? In so many ways, because of course, you know, as a dance teacher, you know that you're going to communicate with the parents, you've got your, your term dates, you've got your end of year show, you want parents to be committed and supportive in, in, in so many different ways. Um, so obviously being a dance mom, you're on the other side, you're receiving emails about information, you've got to retain that information. But you know, it's a real, and it's interesting because I'm a dance mom to a boy. I don't think he's going to dance for the rest of his life. But I was adamant that my child would do some movement classes because obviously I know of the merits. He's a very STEM-oriented science, technology, mathematics person. That's the, this child's brain is geared towards shapes. And actually, he quite likes the patterns of the movement and the tap. But to add the arts, which I'll borrow from Professor Kerry Chapel at the University of Exeter, bringing art into STEM to make it steam. And that's something that Kerry's working on at the moment. So all of my day job cannot be siloed and I just switch off and go, now I'm a mom at home. I do take this, you know, unfortunately becoming the dance mom, or fortunately, volunteering and knowing what it takes for a dance teacher to put on a production, the rehearsals, dress rehearsals, you know, trying to help a young five-year-old understand the importance of being present. And then last but not least, you know, recognising where other parents don't pull their weight or go, oh, we've got to go to rehearsal. Because you've got to appreciate there's that other side to parents going, it's the dance show weekend. <laughs> it's the dance show weekend. It is the dance show weekend. And it makes me also a bit more human to understand that I may be really involved, but then there are others who will have a varying degree and I need to recognise that. You know, it goes back to the skills and commitment and seeing a project from these are the first steps to this is what we do when we put together, mostly dance teachers know, but we put a show together and what are the components that have to come together and being in a new environment like backstage. So I hope that, you know, the other aspect to filling into that being a dance mom is that I recognize particularly in the state sector at junior level, there's little funding for primary schools to do movement classes and dance. So I'm finding myself going back to doing a little bit of that moonlighting only because it's an important area with the, the early years framework that we kind of get young people five-year-olds for to harness that creativity um again where did it all stem from i would say the guest lecture series even i learned so much from you know my invited speakers and the importance of creativity and if you don't harness it in those early years and it's a shame because 
the UK has got a really fabulous um, early years framework that includes, you know, personal and social development, literacy, numeracy, and also an area that includes art and movement and understanding the world. But not every school is has that. So what happens when you have got children who are not experiencing that? So my child was fortunate. Oh, he has a mum who works in the dance industry in higher education. So he was sent to an after-school club. But not everybody's going to have that priority. And I fully respect that. But I really wish primary schools would offer even half an hour of dance, of movement, telling a story. They do a lot of, you know, particularly in the early years, recognising, you know, the phases of a story, beginning, middle and end. If we could transpose that into a movement. Now, some private schools, the privilege of private schools, they have all of that set up. Well, but what about the others who cannot, you know, or are not in a privileged position? So I feel that's also coming onto my radar in terms of recognising as a dance mum where there's privilege and where there isn't. And it's not always to do with the components that we think are economy, race. It's also to do with government as well. Government funding that doesn't make it down to those sort of after-school clubs or those, um, you know, in, in curriculum. Yeah, so really important. But that's where coming full circle that I came here as a somebody eager to, to learn about the dance, curious about the dance. 22 years ago and now as a mother I'm kind of going well the importance of taking my children to theatre watching children's shows only 50 to 45 to 50 minutes mind you that's as much as they can cope with but you know just the movement the singing the, the kind of storytelling that will hopefully leave an imprint on young, young people Katrina, we've covered a huge territory, I feel, in this conversation. We've roamed far and wide and your electric enthusiasm has irradiated it throughout. But I'm going to ask you to distill something from all of those different sorts of curiosity and enthusiasm that you feel and ask you the final question. You know it's coming. It is, why does dance matter to you? It stayed with me for years, for decades, from being that three-year-old to being a 41-year-old academic who has published books. And ev through every journey or every twist and turn in my life, I found that dance has taken me, has enriched me from going to New York and, and curating a conference in New York to going to South Africa to seeing some dances which coincided with my own personal life. So, you know, it kind of feels like... It's a continuum and dance is with me on this continuum. And I, I hope you can never say what future holds, but I do hope and I do suspect dance will be with me in different sort of guises and different kind of projects and different ways to move forward. But it really is that it, it stayed with me over the years and it's helped me evolve as a person, becoming who I am today as a, as a human being. So, yeah, from that interest and that academic possibility it stayed with me Katrina it has been just a joy to 
shared this little stage of the journey with you. Thank you so much. I haven't been taught by Katrina, but I can imagine it would be a pretty enlivening experience, adding Ginger to the dullest seminar. She's certainly given me a lot to think about. Maybe she's done the same for you. How do you feel about the collaboration between dance and academia? You can let us know. I'm at Mr. David Jays on Twitter, and the RAD is at RAD Headquarters. And you can discover more about the faculty and Katrina's own work via our show notes. And please do subscribe and like the podcast so that we can find other people who might enjoy Why Dance Matters. Our guest today was Katrina Ferugia Creel. Why Dance Matters is made by the RAD team of Celia Moran, Melanie Murphy, and Charlie Strachan, and our artwork is by Bex Glendinning. And all stand for our producer, Sarah Miles. I'm David Jays. Take care and see you soon. Mm-hmm.